0: Dr. Walter Aka, Dr. Kradock is busy trying to just live life. Having two kids is just not easy, you know. Uh, And actually, the funny thing is my next guest, who has two kids, can I see a test today, you know. Uh, Dr. Deep Shah, what's going on?
1: Hey, Dr. Walter, what's going on, man? How are you?
0: Good, man. Good. Hey, thank you so much for taking your time to uh, come on here. You know, the one thing about this podcast is we were trying to get validity. We're trying to get people who, you know, have credibility to talk about their specialty and exactly what's going on in dentistry. We get a lot of emails and and calls about pediatric dentistry. So I figure what's the best thing to do but to bring somebody who's board certified pediatric dentist to talk about, you know, uh, what's going on in pediatric dentistry, especially with sedation today. And that's what we're going to focus on Putting people to sleep because we hear so many bad news about you know this kid passed away because the doctor that was doing sedation you know wasn't good or or, or wasn't negligent and we want to kind of talk about all that and and kind of get your perspective from you know the professional. What parents should look out for, because I come to you myself personally whenever I have issues with my daughter, and I'm like, hey, you know, Dr. Shaw, like, what do you think about this, or what should I do with this, you know? So that's basically why I wanted to invite you on here, and I'm I looked out, I went out looking for you, so I definitely appreciate your time. So before we begin, give me a little rundown of yourself personally. Absolutely, man. Well,
1: thank you first of all for having me on. I'm uh, looking forward to, looking forward to this uh, to the show. Uh, so for me personally, as like you mentioned, I've got two kids. I've got two little boys. Uh, one just turned two, and the other one was just born uh, this past February. And so life has definitely been crazy, uh, from the better. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, definitely feel very blessed. Uh, and I have a dog as well, and the, the between three of them, we call them our three little babies. They definitely keep us uh, quite active and busy. But it's truly a blessing. Um, and it's just, you know, we're trying to live life to the fullest. You know, it's, every a blessing and a gift, very, very nice.
0: Excellent. And just let, us, let the listeners know, basically, your educational background.
1: Sure. So I went to dental school at the University of Pennsylvania. I graduated in 2013 from there. And then I went on to pursue my pediatric dental residency. And I was at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh for those next two years. So I graduated in 2015. Uh, Worked in Scranton for a couple of years, uh, moved back to the uh, greater Philadelphia area, which is where I'm from, uh, last March, and uh, since then, uh, you know, just recently took on a attending-slash-faculty member position at the Temple School at the University of Pennsylvania, and I also have um, working at an office, I should say, in the Westchester-Exton area. Here
0: in the of that's awesome. Actually, I grew up near the Westchester, uh, Exton area, right outside where Coatesville High, where Coatesville is. That's where I went to school, Coatesville High. So you're about maybe 15-20 yeah. minutes away from where I grew up, man. Not, yeah,
1: you gotta come, When you're back in town, we gotta,
0: we Oh, for sure, absolutely. That's 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 a no brainer for me. But so let's talk about what you're seeing when it comes to sedation in dentistry, right? Because a lot of a lot of viewers and a lot of listeners. Here, only the bad news about, oh, a kid, you know, died because they were being put to sleep for, I don't know, treatment in in dentistry. So tell us, again, from the beginning, why a pediatric dentist may be the best person to go to, or if you believe that pediatric dentists should be be the people that you go to for sedation. Sure, that's a great question, Walt.
1: So, yeah, I I think, you know, your first line with any type of sedation in the field will be generally... Speaking, especially in regards to children being sedated, will be a pediatric dentist, and that's just because of the way our curriculum works in the residency is that we get exposure to oral sedations, we get exposure to IV sedations, or general anesthesia in the OR, and so we get familiarity with a lot of drugs right off the bat and how they work, how they affect and alter, you know the mindset and the, the neurotransmitters in the brain, uh, you know, kind of what to expect as far as onset time how to what they expect from the metabolism of these medications. And so our residency prepared us quite well to understand what these medications work and how they work kind of on a, a, almost like in a neurochemical sort of, you know, manner, so to say. And so because of that training, uh, most often than not, you know, most of us will come out of residency well-prepared. And I say most of us because there's a lot of programs out there that will still do oralization, but I truly feel that, you know, doesn't get the exposure that it's
0: Okay, so here's a question: When it comes to sedation, right? And give us the different levels of sedation. Like, I'm about to bring my child in, and you know, you're gonna do work on them. When do you just give them the, you know, the oral sedation, meaning like the liquids and stuff? And when do you put them under to sleep?
1: Absolutely. So sedation kind of gets broken down into three stages. You have your mild, your moderate, and then your severe. So your mild sedation is along the lines of using lapping gas or nitric oxide, But you're
0: not saying you're not saying that it has the same reaction. Like you don't have a hangover from this, correct?
1: correct. I mean, there's, there's no hangover. No. I'm in terms of neuro, I guess the the mechanism of action, in the neurochemistry, the way the receptors that burst that effect are the same receptors that alcohol would, would also
0: take. Good, good. Uh, I just don't want parents yeah, to think that the
1: metabolism <laughs> right now, everything like that is totally different. Okay. Uh, Of working time. It's a pretty uh, quick acting medication. is once you administer it, you can administer it either orally, nasally. Uh, you can also administer IV uh, if you're you know doing something, for example, wisdom like a wisdom tooth extraction, but most commonly used if you're doing oral phosphidation, it's going to be either the oral, oral or the, I, the IM route, which uh, is nasal. Takes about 10, about 15 to 20 minutes to from the initial onset if the child drinks it. You're going the nasal route, take it about three to five minutes. And then you have a good 20 to 30 minutes pass of working time. So, you know, generally meant for quicker procedures in the
0: office. Got you. And so that's the, the bottom one, right? That's the mild. What's that's the mild, yeah. What's the moderate? So we're stepping it up. What's the moderate? Sure.
1: So if you're going to do a moderate sedation in office, you're looking at uh, general hydroxygen combination, now, there's some programs out there that'll, you know, do a moderate slash deeper sedation, use it a triple cocktail, uh, so they'll have Coral Hydrate on board. Uh, those sedations, from what I hear, work very, very well. I wasn't personally trained in using Coral Hydrate just because there's no reversal drug out there for chloral, And that's just one of the big things to keep in mind is nowadays, the way things are moving – you want to be very careful about using medications that do not have a reversal agent because you know, there's nothing that you can give in the event of an adverse reaction. And the so coral is something that I'm familiar with, but I personally have not used for that reason. Uh, but I'm very comfortable using Demerol, uh, which is visceral, and then Hydroxazine, also known as Let me repeat that one more time. Demerol, which is also known as Depteridine, and then the, your Hydroxazine, which is also known as Vistril. Um, and those two are synergistic when they work together and they have a great effect, that will elicit more of a modest sedation. And so, it's very important, by the way, what I forgot to mention is if you do these any of these sedations in office, it's just to have a monitoring, monitoring system. So, it pulls off the blood pressure cuff and, and if you can get a state-of-the-art technography as well, uh, just to measure you know, a CO2 volumes, that's actually ideal if you can do that as well. Um, but so with, with the Demerol and uh, the Hydroxazine on board, once a child takes that, it takes about 45 to 60 minutes, you know, until they're kind of ready to take peak effects, so to speak. And then you get a good hour of working time match with those two on board. So that is great for a child who's very cooperative, but just has a little bit extensive work. So let's say you're working on the upper left and lower left.
0: So here's a question for you. When it comes to mild and moderate, what do we look for the kid to kind of be like? Are they just like vegetables or do they still move around? Can they talk to you? How do they act between mild and moderate? Sure. So
1: when you have a more of a mild case, uh, and, and this definitely is it's a great question. And it, it's, this is one of those things where it's hard to have a definitive answer because every child will – Metabolize the medication differently. Yeah. But generally speaking, with the burst set, which is your mild sedation, i like to call most of the time, you'll get something called a, um, I call it rodeo treatment. Because sometimes you've got to buckle off those shoes and you can have a child that's going to be a little skirmish. They're not 100% out of it. They're still awake and alert. Uh, you know, they'll respond to commands. They should respond to commands for both sedations. But uh, a lot of these kids who are on the verse set are awake through the procedure, they're just a little loopy. And so for, for those kids, you know, they'll, sometimes they'll give you a little run for your money. Um, they'll be a little bit difficult, uh, and that's just something that comes. That's one of the challenges that comes with those types of sedations, and that's why they're very quick acting. And you usually tend to use them for treatment that's not very expensive. On the other hand, your modern sedation with the general hydroxyzine, uh, those kids will generally end up taking a little snooze on you, so they're, they're they're well behaved. You have. X rays on them. I'm looking for diagnostic X rays that I you know can visualize. I know exactly the treatment on hand. And those kids are pretty chilled out to begin with. And so when they're on this, they just, you know, most of the time will take a snooze, they have their eyes closed. You know, one thing, the biggest thing here is that they are not deep. So they should be able to respond to your verbal commands, to your stimuli. They just want to be chilled out with their eyes closed and just totally comfortable. And that's exactly what you're looking for.
0: Okay. And uh, when it comes to age wise, what would you recommend as the youngest that somebody should do mild or moderate? And if this is a tough question, I understand that every kid is different, but what do you look for when it comes to, you know, being able to sedate somebody? When is the youngest that you can actually sedate a mild or moderate uh, you know, put Yeah. yeah. That's pretty that, that's
1: tough to answer because it all depends on personal choice and personal comfortability. Okay. Uh, I'm okay, for example, being a two, two and a half year old to do versus, uh, I will not give a child, you know, general uh, at that age. But for me, giving a child general, a general hydroxy cocktail. That's a cocktail, moderate. Coffee.
0: That's a moderate, uh, yeah, right? moderate. Yeah,
1: it's moderate. At, at least three. And that, that's for me. Um, I will not, you know, go go any younger than that for, for the general. Um, but for the, with, uh, excuse me for the burst head, I have done two, two and a half. Uh, like I said, sometimes these kids come with baby ball decay, and teeth D through G are just totally rotted, rotted out, there's an access, and I know that I can, you know, taking the teeth out it's quick one, two, three for me in the office. And instead of seeing them through GA, I'm comfortable seeing them that early, where I can give them a little bit of burst in, in those cases, a lot of times it's intra-mesial burst that I'll give them. And so they're pretty damped, uh quickly. Uh, the the intravenous does burn. The only you know kind of side effect of that. But when they're that young, you have the amnesia effect. It kind of counterbalances in the end. So most of the time, even the older kids may not really remember what happened, or they're kind of a little disoriented.
0: So what do you think that uh, parents should look for when it comes to the mild and moderate? What what kind of equipment should the doctor have so that the parents feel comfortable to say, okay, you know what, this person knows what they're doing and they're actually going to be able to take care of my kid?
1: It doesn't matter what kind of dentist you are. Um, be willing and open to listen to questions. Don't take things personally, and, or you know, and be offended. Uh, you know, your parents you gotta look at it that. Most of the time, they're anxious. They've all heard stories, and they all rely on Doctor Google. And it's just the way that today's day and age is. bad. that? Yeah, I
0: hate I hate Doctor Google <laughs> sometimes. I really do. It's just
1: at like everyone's fingertips, and uh, even we do it. You know, we want to look up something online. It's you know do a Google review. Right. It's one of the things that, you know, you're there as an educator, but, you know, just be willing to answer the question. As a parent, now, I'm okay, you know, expect parents to ask what your level of training is in regard to this, A little bit more versed into what their child is getting into so they may ask you you, know, Do you guys have a crash cart you know um what's the worst thing that's happened in your office and so these are things i say you know it's a good discussion to have with your staff uh and just for you to know don't get any attention to it these are all great questions right uh, the more transparent that you are with them uh the more of a you know confidence and a trust that you're going to build and a better rapport that you're going to build not only with the child but with their with the, with the parents as well
0: here here's one thing too what about uh, having the parent in the uh, in the oper- operor- operatory? I'm sorry, in the operatory when you're doing the procedure, do you tell them, hey, you can stay here, or do you put them in front, you know, in, in the waiting room? Sure.
1: So I personally like to have parents back, and this is another one of those things that can go either way uh, because you're dealing with medication. Sometimes you'll have helicopter parents in the room, and I totally understand. You know, we've we've all had that, regardless of whether you know you're you're reading a tooth or uh, you're doing a consult, we all have helicopter parents that are out there and so I think you kind of gauge it on a situation by situation basis. For me personally, I like to have the parents back there. A, I think they see what's going on. Uh, but before they do come back, I just you know make sure I go over the guidelines and the rules with them. And I kind of want them to be a silent helper. And that's exactly what I reiterate to the parents is that hey you're more than welcome to come back. I just need to be need you to be a silent a silent helper. I have the parents back to me I like because if I have to go over an x-ray, if I'm taking an x-ray the day out and something changes, they're in the room and I'm kind of, you know, with kids, sometimes time and money, you know, and so if this kid is just, I have a limited amount of time with them, I don't want to be getting up, going out, you know, trying to find a parent in the waiting room or having the assistant go get the parent. This way I have everything right there in front of me. X-rays, the parent, my assistant, everyone is in one room in one location. And so if I need to show them something, they're right there. The second thing I like, I personally like having parents, is because if you have a child who's just getting a little anxious, sometimes having their parents' on the voice helps them. I'll even have parents sometimes hold the hand, uh, And this is generally, like I said, mainly speaking, when I'm doing my birth sedation, and the kids are awake and a little bit, you know, squirmish and swoomish, and it kind of helps out to have the parents there. Once again, the biggest thing here is communication, just making sure the parent is aware of all
0: So, do you consider it to be a red flag if the doctor says, oh, no, I want you to go sit up front? Because whenever you hear these horror stories, you hear, well, they told me to go sit up front. 30 minutes later, an hour later, my, my kid was still in treatment, and then all of a sudden, I, you know, an hour goes by, two hours goes by, and I haven't heard anything. Do you think it's a red flag when, when parents are told to go sit up front? Or is that just something that you know you do you say hey let's keep the parents here but most people will say you know go sit up front
1: no i i actually don't think it's a red flag i think mean, you know you, you know whenever you meet somebody you kind of get that rapport and that's why you have a consultation appointment you know you should feel comfortable and i always tell parents that hey if you're not comfortable you know then go get a second opinion not, i like I, said, I take no offense to that Because at the end of the day In my case, like I said, if you lay that foundation and they understand that they're, they're a solid helper, you know, and I will be using their assistance that try to make them feel part of the process as well that holding the child's hand um, at times. I think as long as those guidelines are understood by the parent and there's no objection, I have no problem breaking them that.
0: Okay. Let's go into um, the last one, which is deep or heavy sedation or general sedation. I mean, whatever you want to call it. Who was a candidate for that, and how does that all look whenever you actually do that? And, sure. and do so you do it and do you do it in, uh, in, in office?
1: Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead,
0: I'm sorry, and do you do it in office?
1: Okay. Uh, so a lot of these kids that answer your first part of the question um, that are going under GA or general anesthesia in, in the operating room tend to be children uh, who have a lot of treatment needs. so maybe extensive decay. They're not cooperative in the chair. they're either very anxious or they're just medically compromised. And a lot of times you might be ASA3, ASA4 patient. Uh, Break that down for children.
0: us. What's ASA uh, so, three and four?
1: Oh. So ASA three and four is just like kind of the um, classification of how healthy you know uh, a, a child is, like so one being you know very healthy. Two, they have like something like asthma, where they have a systemic issue that doesn't affect their daily function. Three, it's a little more complicated where they may have a systemic issue that does affect their daily function, and then four is you know they're just they pretty much need assistance. They're, they're taking medication on a daily basis for which they cannot you know fully be optimal and thrive. Um, and so a lot of kids, for example, as three, as class three or four. Uh, I'm looking at maybe a child who has obesity and asthma. Which is a compounding am uh, comorbidity, so to speak. I'm looking at children who may have test, uh, cleft, lift, cleft palate, um, Down syndrome, aapir, uh, Kuzon. Some of these right. diseases were in right. and right. so, so without a doubt, I'm not going to take a risk and you know do anything that can compromise the child's airway in, in office whether it be through oral college sedation or even doing anything IV in-office sedation. And so those kids, you definitely want them intubated, and the hospital is the best place for that. The main difference between doing an in-office sedation and a hospital sedation
0: so, I mean, let me summarize real quick. It seems like the more complex the child is, the more you intend to say, hey, let's just go ahead and do general anesthesia. If the, you know, if the kid lays back and it, their airway closes, right, they're, they're basically having a hard time breathing, they're, they're, they have difficulties with syndromes like Down syndrome or whatever, then you say, you know what, for the safety of the child – for me to be able to monitor every single thing that goes with them, let's go ahead and put them to sleep. Put a tube down their throat so that the tube can breathe for them. So I'm not worried about, hey, are there? Is the airway going to be closed when I'm in the middle of doing a filling or an extraction? Correct. Absolutely correct.
1: Especially if those patients who are at high risk. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, especially if they're syndromic, uh, You know, if they have certain things like high You know, if there's some underlying factors that are to, you know that are going to complicate the airway. In a child, you know, the airway is the most important thing. And so you've never, and if you get a child that, you know, starts having a laryngitis and it gets worse, uh, I look at a child's airway as, you know, a toilet. Because if you flush that toilet, things just start, start, you know, going round and round. And <clears throat> those to suck up real quick. And that's what you do not want. Again, so if To get into a messy situation with a child, uh, if you can absolutely avoid that. Because, you know, th- those are not those are not fun. And unfortunately, those are a lot of the cases that you do hear about in the news um, with an, you know,
0: unfortunate outcome. Right. So most of the time, when you do the general anesthesia, you're doing this in a hospital setting, correct? So yeah. So personally,
1: I like to do. I have a example anesthesiologist, so I'll do a lot of IV cases in office. But with those kids, they're class one or class two um, in regards to ASA classification. I also do assessment which I think is very important for anyone who's doing oral conscious sedation or even IV sedation in the office so if you want to just take an airway assessment of the child so you're looking at uh So basically you examine,
0: you examine back there to make sure that you can see all the way through to the end, right? You're going to see the uvula and are the, are are the tonsils touching or anything like that. You want to see a clear path. Like it's kind of like you're on the highway. You don't want to see any uh, construction. You don't want to see any uh, accidents. You want to see straight down the road.
1: We're seventy miles per hour, and there's no, you know, there's no construction on the road.
0: That's not I mean, Houston, by freeway, the way.
1: One hundred forty-five, you know, forty-five miles per limit. Right. Um, freeway with, you know, construction and you know, merging and things like that. So those are the more clear and direct you are, and then, you know, the ease of access that you have. Uh, a recovery for is easier, it's safer, and your time of working is going to be quicker because you're not going to be sitting there um, doing a chin lift. You know, trying to get underneath, and you know, having to worry about the child's desatting and things of that nature. So we right. want to make this as crystal clear, smooth as possible, not only for you as a provider, but also for the child's
0: recovery. So let's talk about. So now that you've gone through the whole sedation, mild, moderate, and uh, general anesthesia. Let's talk about some of the things that you've noticed in, in dentistry when it comes to some people some you know maybe they're actual specialists, maybe they're pediatric dentists, maybe they're general dentists, but what are some of the things that general dentists or pediatric dentists take for granted when it comes to being able to sedate a kid? What are some of the things that people are just not taking serious enough?
1: i mean, I, I think sometimes uh, the biggest thing that i see that, that it kind of rubs deep in the wrong way. People will take us and say a weekend course on information or they'll go to a seminar or a conference and they'll come out and say, all right, like, I learned about this. Like, I'm ready to do it. And I always say, "Seeing is believing. And you can have two or three great cases, and that's not even enough. I'm saying you could do 30, 40, 50 smooth cases. But in dentistry, it only takes one case uh, and and one unfortunate event, you know, to really put a, a dent in your career or even your confidence and so even to this day i mean i've done over a thousand oral sedations I, I i never get too comfortable and i think that's the message here is that i think any person that, that does oral sedation on a routine basis does IV sedation or is even in the ga uh, you just never get too comfortable because the moment you get too comfortable that's when something's gonna happen and so you're always on and you're always, you are always stay alert and it. the other thing is that a lot of times people feel that these are these medications are magic, and it's the answer to their you know problems. And so that is also you know not the case. You're going to be battling, like I said, the kids sometimes, especially when it comes to Like you have to be mindful of how much you're going to give the child, and you have the proper dosing. You need to be comfortable with the dosing. You need to understand that once you dose, you can't read dose You know you don't know what some of these medications have the first half effect, and that's the only downside sometimes with oral sedation is that it's not titratable. And so you don't know how the child is going to respond to it. You don't know how much they're going to metabolize. Sometimes if the child is a little bit heavier, these medications will tend to hang around in the adipose tissue a little bit longer. So instead of having an onset, let's say with diversion, which could take 15 minutes, you might get an onset at 30 minutes. And then instead of the child, you know, being up in, you know, on their feet, let's say 45 minutes, it might take them an hour, hour and a half, uh, because when that medication drug is broken the adipose tissue, it's going to hold on to those fat cells a lot longer. And so there's a lot of other things that you got to take into consideration. And so the best thing I recommend is that if you're wanting to oral sedation, because I do think it's a great, a great medium between nitrous and then going to the other extent which is GA, it's a great intermediate option. I do recommend, yes, get up to date on your knowledge, take courses, uh, you know, get the education that you need from those seminars, those courses. But you'll have a shadow role surgery, so go shadow a pediatric dentist or an IV anesthesiologist and get familiar with the medication. See a child de you know, see different scenarios and situations. Uh, because it's really, you know, learning that doesn't do it justice once you're there and you're
0: hands off. So let me try to summarize what you just said right there. Um, you're basically saying to our listeners that whenever you give a a, a child or patient of yours uh, something that they take into orally you can't actually tell them, hey, you know what? I'm going to be able to give you this certain amount, you know, and it's going to work exactly this way, right? You can't do that. Titration really means that you can actually control for how much you give exactly to the to the milliliter, right? And you can't do that uh, when you do that. So patients actually end up maybe getting hit with the medication really fast or really slow, and fat tissue holds on to that medication and then releases it. So maybe something that you thought was going to be over in 20 minutes might end up taking 40 minutes because that the fat tissues have basically started releasing more of the medication to the kid's uh, bloodstream, correct? Absolutely, well uh, That's
1: absolutely correct. I mean, oh. You're looking at multiple factors here. So uh, it's not going to be a cookie-cutter you know, a scenario or cookie-cutter diagnosis. You have to evaluate the kid. You need to know understand what the kid's demeanor is. Are they compliant with radiographs? You know, do you have x-rays on them? Um, what's their BMI like? No, Do they have more adipose tissue? What's their airway like? And that's one of the biggest things is, what is their airway? If they have a Mount Tidey-1-Brosky-1, one, one, it's a very nice, open airway, fantastic. If they're an M3 with, like, a B4 kissing tonsils, that's the one you don't want to stay away from. Because so you know they're going to do that when really because that that airway, that upper airway is going to have a lot of resistance. And so you're going to want to, you know, that's something that you may not want to take a bite on and do in office. And so there's a lot of different criteria and factors that, that are going to play a role, excuse me, into patient selection. But at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to patient selection patient, patient criteria. Um, and that's going to really, really help determine, you know, kind of the route that you want to go for students.
0: And so basically, and, it's, and anybody can actually look this up. If you want to look up kissing tonsils, it's actually pretty interesting because literally the tonsils on both sides touch each other. And that actually could end up closing an airway when the child lays down. So it's really interesting. This is the time I'm actually saying Google something. You know, uh, how long does it take you to actually go through the pre, um, I don't know, pre-surgical uh, uh, um, uh, evaluation on a child?
1: Yeah, I, for me, it's usually about, like, 15 minutes or so. I'm looking at, uh, you know, before they come in, uh, I'll do their airway assessment prior, you know, to that. So then the day of, I'll just, you know, take a look at their airway once again. I'll have to op- open, them, test- open them out, take their tongue out. I'm just checking for any of the or back there Liar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you know that they have something to eat, and so that's the biggest thing. Is I like I you let parents know ahead of time that you know if they, if they eat something, yeah, you you. This is a dangerous situation. You know, you bring the child at risk of a very negative adverse event that's going occur, which can lead to them, you know, being hospitalized and even worse. And you know, you don't want to go there. And so once you imply that to the parents, you talk about the grave dangers of of you know, them not being compliant with the rules and the regulations and the sedation protocol. You know, no, no one wants to, you know, put their child in, in that type of situation. So that's when they'll come forward and say, Yeah, he didn't have this or I believe he didn't have this. And well, then settings, you know? well, so it's not it's not worth the risk. And so well, I want to make sure that these kids are coming in, nothing in your drink. Um I always tell them midnight at night four. You know, at least you want to I think the guidelines will tell you at least eight hours. I'm on the safe side, I always say you got know, at least twelve hours.
0: So explain to uh, our listeners why having a kid who ate something before the procedure is a bad idea. What happens?
1: Yeah. Sure. I mean, the biggest thing you're worried about here is these kids repurposing, right? Like if something goes wrong, they're not comfortable, um, they have to, you know, in their belly, we're using nitrous. Nitrous will cause some distension of, of, of your belly as well. And in these kids, you kind of lose your reflexes a little bit as well, and so if they vomit what you're worried about here the biggest thing is this child kind of vomiting and bringing up some food or something solid like milk and then having an aspiration pneumonia and that's of what your biggest kind of one of your biggest concerns is, is that something gets up reverticated and then they swallow mm-hmm. it back in and it goes down the wrong pipe but now it's going into the lungs that's going to affect their pulmonary function
0: Last question, and we'll wrap it up here um, and we'll bring you sure. on for other stuff. But how safe, let's, let's end on a good note because I honestly know this answer. But how safe is it for you to go to a pediatric dentist and for them to either give your child, you know, a mild, moderate, or general anesthesia? How safe is it most of the time?
1: Yeah, so I, I would it's actually very safe. Um, you know, you're going to professionals that have gone to school for this, that gone to trade for this. The ones out there that are doing it are doing it because they're comfortable with it and they have a lot of exposure to it. The ones that aren't doing it, hey, totally fine. And I actually respect the ones that aren't doing it because they are in their comfort zone and they want to, you know, provide the best treatment for the child. And if they think that they're not comfortable with it, then, you know, that's a decision that they've made and it's a great decision because you always want to put the safety and the welfare of the child first and foremost. Uh, With that being said, I think there's a great opportunity for, you know, and pediatric dentists, my colleagues out there, who really want to do oral sedations that are uncomfortable, to learn more about it and, you know, to become more confident and comfortable. Because the biggest thing I see here, a lot of times, you know, you're looking at either one end of the spectrum or the other. You're looking at, hey, let's try with, uh, let's try with nitrous, and if nitrous doesn't work, right, we're going to GA. And sometimes in GA cases, it's a long wait. You know, these kids might be waiting four to six months. Um, and that's generous, you know, sometimes longer than that. And when you're in a hospital setting, the hospital it has a very slow turnover, so you can't see, you know, generally speaking, five, six, seven, eight kids in one day. You know, you may see only three to four or five now. And if you have a constant, you know, a constant weight lift, you're 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 going to be starting to start to book out months out. And so, I find the oral consolidation to be a great.
0: Thank you so much, honestly, for uh, coming in today to talk about sedation. I think that that's something that a lot of people want to know about because we go, we take our kids, and our kids are always getting medications of this and that and this. And I want to make sure that people understand what's happening. So, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how would they go about doing that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm on Instagram. Uh, my username is the superhero dentist. Uh, so you can feel free to shoot me a message there. I will post some content time to time. Just on everything, anything pediatric related or from oral hygiene, diet tips, and so on and so forth. So oh. probably that's best the to get get a hold of me is through an Instagram. And once again, that the superhero dentist.
0: The superhero dentist. All right, perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaw. Uh, we will definitely talk to you soon again. And uh, if we have any other questions, we'll ask. Thank you. Take care. Have a good night. All right. Uh, Thank you for having me and. Are right, you too, man. Bye. Right. Thank you for listening to Tooth Be Told. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at realdentistswith s at gmail.com. That's realdentist, R-E-A-L, dentist, with an S at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions on this podcast are just that our professional opinions, the final decision about your health, should be made by you and a trusted dental professional.